Welcome to a new episode of Let's Shape the Future. I hope you're all having a great day. I am your host, Ben Dickinson, and for those that don't know, this is a show where I chat with business leaders, inspiring individuals, and more about who and what is shaping the future. If you enjoy, please leave a review, and also feel free to share your thoughts with me on LinkedIn or other social platforms. So without further ado, let's crack on with the episode. Hello and welcome to a new episode of Let's Shape the Future Series 2. Um, we've had a number of inspirational nonprofit organisations on the show and today is another amazing example. Um, I'm joined today by Paul Taylor, um, Executive Director of Food Share Toronto, whose vision is a Toronto where all people can feed themselves, their loved ones and their communities with dignity and joy. So firstly, Paul, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Ben. Thanks for having me. Thanks. Um, so for those that aren't familiar with FoodShare, did you want to provide a bit of an overview of the organization? For sure. And, you know, whenever I'm asked this question, I always start in the same place uh, because I think not enough people know this, but food is a right. Uh, it's a right in Canada. It's a right in the UK and several other countries across the globe. So that's why Food Share really centers our work on the right to food. And what we do is we advocate for food justice by supporting community-based initiatives, uh, as well as ongoing advocacy and public education. Ultimately, our vision is a city where everyone can feed themselves, their loved ones and their communities with dignity and joy. What that looks like for us is we work with local communities right across the city of Toronto to develop community-led food infrastructure. So things like urban farms uh, on, on, on um, underutilized public land, market gardens, subsidized community produce markets, community compost exchanges, a whole host of kind of food-based activities. And in essence, what we're doing is building food infrastructure in communities that have been chronically, and I would say systematically, underinvested in. Mm, no, it's, it's, it's an amazing mission. And for... Did you want to take, sort of take it back to the very start? So, so what what are some of the reasons why? Or you hinted to some there, but but what is the sort of the reasons why Food Share was started, and is there any specific inspiration behind it? Yeah, actually, you know, it was in 1984 that the first food bank was opened. So a year before Food Share opened, the first food bank in Toronto, I should say. And of course, it was designed as a temporary stopgap measure to support the city's uh, hungry through the recession and to buffer government austerity. So what began to quickly emerge is folks really tuned into this issue, realized that more work had to be done. So a variety of stakeholders were brought together and several ideas emerged out of those conversations as to how, you know, we could be, um, as a city, better responding to this growing crisis of food insecurity. And some of those, those ideas ranged from, you know, community-based programs to programs and initiatives connecting farmers to, pro to food programs in the city um, and, and looking at how we create new distribution chains for local food uh, in the city and connected to nonprofits. So several of those early ideas and approaches provided some of the conceptual framework for Food Share Toronto um, that was, and, and actually was led by um, a coalition that was led by the then mayor of the city of Toronto, a fellow named Art Eggleton. And as you say, I think we've evolved um, in society. It's, it's not as simple nowadays as to just sort of donate a, a tin of beans to a food bank and that solve a problem. There, there's there's a wider scale of things, isn't there? So um, sure. in terms of the cause you aim to impact, how how 
big is the problem of food insecurity um, in in Canada, for example? For sure. So the most recent statistics uh, in the middle of the pandemic uh, suggest that there are over 5 million people that are food insecure in Canada, which is huge, you know, but I think it's also important to note that it's an underestimate, you know, that the data that stats, uh, Statistics Canada collects on food insecurity doesn't include folks that have been made homeless or Indigenous folks living on reserve. So food insecurity in Canada is at a crisis level and is only getting worse even before the pandemic. So to put it into context, one of the things I often say in this country is that the number of people that are food insecure is about equal to three of our largest cities, Toronto, Montreal, and Winnipeg combined. Uh, And it is like, I I can't underscore this enough. It's a major crisis that requires significant attention. When you put it like that, in terms of it's the equivalent population of those cities, is mm-hmm. just and and that being an underestimate as well, it it just shows the magnitude of of what you're trying to to combat. And to, to that point, you hinted at a couple earlier, but I know you've got a large number of programs that you run to to sort of achieve your mission. Did you want to um, sort of give us an overview of a bit about them and and the sort of range of services that you provide at Foodshare? Yeah, it, it really runs the gamut. I, I, I'm still working on figuring out my elevator pitch that describes all of the work that we do. So so bear with me here. But, uh, you know, I guess the, the underpinning of this work is that we don't go into communities and lead anything. We go into, we work alongside communities um, and community leaders to help build food infrastructure. So we're, we are heavily involved in things like uh, community food growing. So working with communities to develop urban farms, develop uh, markets and uh, connected to those farms. Um, we also are heavily involved in school food programming, so helping to establish a number of school food programs, ultimately supporting over 200,000 kids in the city of Toronto to access uh, a meal in school and in, in, in normal times, of course. We also operate social enterprises. Um, where we sell produce either in bulk or to uh, deliver it to people's homes to generate revenue to support our work. Uh, we also, you know, one of the things we realize as we as we learn more about food insecurity and, and some of the barriers uh, in society is we're really thoughtful around how we deploy our resources. So as a nonprofit with a fair bit of experience, we've been around for a while, we um, leverage some of our experience to support uh, folks in equity-seeking groups, often in low-income communities that are are trying to respond to food insecurity and develop uh, food infrastructure in their communities or food-based projects in their communities. So we have something called our Supportive Partnership Platform, where we uh, leverage our resources to support them in developing the types of things and projects that they're hoping to achieve. So there's a lot going on within Foodshare then. (laughs) There is. And I think I've just uh, scraped, I've just barely scraped the top of uh, some of what we do. There's there's a whole host of activity happening at Foodshare. Yeah. and, And I think when you talk about it like that, I think it just resonates that there, this obviously isn't, obviously you, you operate in Toronto, but this isn't just a Canadian issue, is there? This is a sort of global issue. So it's so important mm-hmm. to have organizations like yourselves to at least try and combat where they can. Um, so I understand that 
um obviously food share is not as you say it's not just about redistributing other people's leftovers but but to get fresh and nutritional produce to individuals who need it why Mm -hmm. is this so important and is it easier said than done or as we sort of hinted to earlier do do you think it's time to sort of rethink just donating tins of baked beans and other stuff to to food banks Oh, absolutely. You know, it's really important because what we've done um, is we've made food a commodity, which means that how much money you have dictates how much food you have. Mm. And, you know, people deserve choice and to eat with dignity. And that's something that food-based charities, food banks don't always offer. Right now, we have a system that largely tells people with low incomes that what they're entitled to is food that would otherwise go in the garbage or in compost, you know, other people's leftovers or corporate waste. Can you imagine? Like, this is one of the things I really have been thinking about you know can you imagine collecting leftover stale food from a conference that people have coughed over breathed over and whatever else and throwing it in a big garbage bag and taking it to a homeless shelter that's what we've come to in this country and many across the globe all while we really ignore the real solutions you know we've got to be talking about tackling racism ensuring decent work providing livable wages and building housing geared to our incomes you know instead of based on the incomes of of some of the richest uh, and their offspring. These are the types of conversations and activities that that we need to be talking about if we truly want to commit to ending food insecurity once and for all. Mm, I think, as you say, I'd never really thought of it like that, that that food was a commodity. And and it seems so logical when you explain it like that. Uh, As you say, in terms of when you think of homeless shelters, it's always the leftovers. It's never, they Mm -hmm. never get an equal share of the pie. They never get the fresh stuff, um, which is, which is is crazy. And as you said earlier, in terms of the over 5 million Canadians experiencing food insecurity, um, which is obviously a, a huge problem in itself, but, well, you mentioned just then about the race side of it. So within that, Indigenous and Black households have a disproportionately large share of that five million. Why do you think that is? Oh, well, you know, the answer to what's happening for Black Canadians when it comes to the disproportionate levels of food insecurity is is rather simple. It's a result of widespread anti-Black racism. And I imagine, although I'm not Indigenous, I imagine that when it comes to Indigenous folks uh, and food insecurity, you know, that's really rooted in colonialism, continued genocide and anti-Indigeneity. You know, in 2019, um, Foodshare partnered with a food security, food insecurity research uh, public policy institution at the University of Toronto called Proof. And what we wanted to do was look at the experiences of Black Canadians when it came to food insecurity. And this had never been done. Uh, As far as we could tell, there had never been research like this done in the country. And what we learned challenged much of what had been commonly understood about food insecurity in Canada. You know, the first thing we found was that if you're Black, you're three and a half times more likely, if you live in a Black household, excuse me, you're three and a half times more likely to live in a a food insecure household than if you were white and there were the things that like i said that we understood like you know the drivers of food insecurity or some of the things that had a correlation with food insecurity we knew that if someone lived in a single single parent household they're more likely to be food insecure um, if they were a renter or over a homeowner you know those sorts of things well in this research we found that for black canadians it didn't matter if a if it was a black household uh, that has had a single parent household or a dual parent household, the immigration status didn't matter, home 
ownership status had had little to no impact. Um, you know, all of these things really provided evidence for us that suggested that you know the issue of anti-black racism um, it has to be prioritized when we think of what what we need, what tools we need to be reaching for uh, to tackle food insecurity. Mm, I think, obviously, in the last sort of year or so, you've had. Um... The, the amazing Black Lives Matters um, protests and sort of initiatives that they've driven and and everyone sees in the news around sort of the the, the violence side to it in terms of um, the racism there and sort of the the police and and just general but you I mean I personally I'll admit I hadn't thought that that would then translate into something as simple as how much food that you you'd have in your household it's it's is just absolutely crazy and it it must be quite a difficult thing to actually target as a sort of side note to what you're doing in terms of it, obviously you all of your stuff is with the aim to combat the food insecurity but how do you specifically address the racial inequality side of that well, it's definitely not easy work, but we're of the belief that it is critical work. And it starts with a meaningful commitment to identifying the ways in which white supremacy, colonialism and racism inflict harm on BIPOC folks and all of our systems and institutions. You know, uh, racism is everywhere, but we need to start somewhere. And I think what we've got to do away with is no more of this, I don't see race, no more throwing our hands up in the air, no more token hires. We actually need to fix the systems that don't work for us Mm. and as you say there i think sometimes you need to really assert yourself with these sorts of things and and obviously there's the sort of things you hinted to there some of them may be sort of classed as a sort of band-aid over the issue but they're not actually eradicating the core issue that's there in terms of systemic racism so so is there anything that you would like to see happen specifically that would have a permanent impact on the individuals experiencing food insecurity, but also um, those in the sort of in the black and indigenous households? Well, I, I think some of the band-aids that, uh, you know, when we think about food insecurity, some of the band-aids that we've long held on to, you know, these are like withered away band-aids, but food banks, you know, the explosion of food banks. So what we want to see is we want to see a rights-based approach. You know, as I said earlier, Canada signed on to the right to food in 1966 and ratified it in 1976. So that actually means that the Canadian government, the British government, who both ratified the right to food, are responsible for creating the conditions that allow people to feed themselves and their families. Not, it's not a right to leftovers or, like I say, what would go into the garbage or compost. So what, what we need to commit to and make sure that our politicians are committing to is towards the progressive realization of the right to food instead of this over-reliance on charity. You know, one of the things that I've been saying that really upsets me is we see politicians at food banks and other food-based charities taking photos of them sorting tins. And I, I get so furious. I want to say, put down the tins and start sorting the, the public policy because that's what we're paying you to do. Mm, yeah, the, it, it sort of um, 
hits home when you say it that I, I don't know if you'd seen in the news but recently there's been quite a lot of stuff in in britain around um individuals that normally receive sort of um free school meals um so mm-hmm. children that, that receive free school meals and i, I was one of those um, when i was younger and um mm-hmm. there, there was a whole campaign with a, a footballer called marcus rashford where he's um keeping the government accountable and really driving the initiative to get free school meals across the Christmas holidays and and especially during this sort of pandemic time. Um, And there were some pictures that came out in terms of um, the amount of food that these people were being given. And it was just absolutely outrageous. Um, And I, I think we it just shows that there are these issues all around the globe um and that's why it's, it's so important for for people like yourselves to to do these sorts of initiatives Ultimately, you know, there, there are these issues across the globe and, you know, uh, there are a number of school-based food programs that have emerged. And I think while we're supporting school food programs, we also have to ask ourselves in one of the, you know, in Canada and the UK, some of the richest countries in the world, why is it that people have to depend on these types of school-based interventions? What is going on in our society? Uh, like I say, the richest countries in the world where people are not actually having having enough income. And I think that's the key. People who don't have enough income to buy the food that they need. And um, until we're willing to talk about income-based interventions, we will never solve this issue. We'll just keep applying a bigger and bigger Band-Aid. I I hadn't thought of it like that because, as you say, although it's terrible that people in these initiatives are getting treated like they are, as you say, they shouldn't be getting to these initiatives. They, we shouldn't need these sorts of things in place mm-hmm. um, for, for, for the sort of corresponding issues to then happen. It's um, No, it is awful. And just uh, m- moving on slightly, um, sort of keeping in line with the topic. So I know that um, regarding sort of addressing these sorts of topics in general, I know that you've currently been holding some sort of virtual discussions about them. For example, um, ending white supremacy in food systems and, and dismantling the stigma around fat and weight loss. Why mm-hmm. do you think it's important to have these discussions, but also for people to openly discuss them? Because these are the issues that affect who has food and who doesn't. And, you know, I think we've been in the food, in the food system, in the food movement, we've been prone to white universalism, you know, white leaders, white folks with positions of power, uh, suggesting interventions and responses to this issue that work, perhaps work for white folks. But until we're willing to talk about, you know, the intersecting issues of things like weight shaming, especially when it comes to food charity um, and, and, and a commitment to challenging white supremacy, we are just going to continue to, to, you know, hold up white universalism and again, not get to the core of these issues. So I think one of the things we're also seeing is why these sorts of conversations are popping up is, you know, slowly, it's almost at a snail's pace, but we're seeing more racialized leaders access space in, in the solution finding spaces, whether it's at charities or um, uh, when it comes to as politicians and responding with public policy, I think we're starting to see a different type of conversation that reflects the urgency and the lived experience of folks who are forced to navigate these issues. Mm. So in your opinion, do you think things are slowly but surely getting more positive and moving forward to where we'd like to be? 
Oh, yeah. I think there are many of us that have been chipping away and uh, pushing a justice and a rights-oriented approach to tackling food insecurity and poverty. And, you know, on a good day, I feel like more folks are coming to that conversation and that we're collectively demanding to have our fundamental human rights upheld, because these are conversations of human rights, not ones that should be framed for charity. And of course, our, uh, you know, folks in communities are trying their best. They, they, they hear that their neighbors might be hungry and they're trying to do what they can, but ultimately these are not the questions for community to solve. These are fundamental human rights that our governments have signed on to protect, that they need to be uh, uh, working to do just that. Yeah, I think I think that's a, a sort of key takeaway that I'm taking from this episode so far is there's all of these amazing things that people do, but they shouldn't have to do them. They, it, mm. should, it shouldn't get to the stage where neighbours are having to reach out to people that are in need or or people rely on free school meals there's bigger issues or sort of mm -hmm. issues earlier in the timeline which need to be fixed so that then these things don't have to happen and it could be fixed tomorrow you know um, again when we talk about food insecurity it actually has nothing to do with food um, very little to do with food, I should say. It's about income, the income that people need to buy the food uh, that they need. And often what we see is what chips away at people's ability to buy the food that they need is either a low income, high housing costs, high medication costs. So, you know, those are the types of programs. If we start building truly affordable housing, if we start, uh, you know, in the Canadian context, advancing pharmacare, um, you know, these are the things that are going to have significant impacts on people's ability to access the food that they need and truly challenge food insecurity, as opposed to some of the approaches that we've embraced and held on to for as long as we have. Yeah, no, no, I completely agree. And and when sort of taking it back to food share specifically, for, from when you started to now, how has the what sort of impact have you had on communities and, and how has that evolved over time since your inception? Yeah, I think we've just continued to build on the work that we've been doing, you know, since 1985. But I also think the fact that we're challenging conversations and we're centering race and race-based inequities um, and the realities of colonialism and genocide and patriarchy at the center of these conversations, more and more people who may not have seen themselves uh, positioned in, in solution-finding spaces or welcomed at solution-finding tables are reaching out to food share and saying, how can I help? You know, and, and that to us is really exciting because it, it will take all of us, especially when it comes to holding our governments to account. So I, I'm really enthused that people are understanding the issue in, in, in some part uh, due to some of our work and the work of, of others across the globe, but people are understanding the issue of food insecurity a bit more, and they're starting to do what they can to hold their politicians to account. And these are folks who perhaps weren't as involved before in, in, in solution finding. Mm, yeah, I think, and sort of uh, taking it back to, to the example I gave of, of Marcus Rashford, the footballer, what he's doing in the UK is um, it's amazing to see that these sorts of people and just people around him and the public, what impact they can really have. I think if you, if people really raise their voice and as you say, hold the government and the individuals in charge accountable, there is a real impact to be made there. And if, an, if enough of us speak up, enough of us drive for these changes, 
then that it it, it, it it I think my point is it's not okay for just a couple of people to do it. We need to have as many people as possible fighting for these changes. Especially the people with the most privilege in our society, you know, because those are the folks who have access to a greater number of power resources. Uh, so we especially need those folks to be uh, having those conversations at dinner tables with their families, but also stepping up and doing and, and working alongside us to keep our elected officials accountable for these uh, commitments that they've signed on to. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I think um talking about food shares so so and obviously the current times that we live in with with coronavirus um, and the pandemic how how has that affected your ability to conduct the programs and other initiatives that you um that you conduct and have you also seen an increase in demand for your services because of the pandemic well, it's, yeah, that's a really great question. It's been an interesting thing, you know, as soon as the pandemic hit, one of the things we saw was that, um, you know, there were reports that close to 40% of food banks across the city of Toronto were forced to close. Uh, and, and folks were struggling with access to food, Can, uh, especially the folks who were struggling before that even. So a couple of things that we did is one, we established uh, balcony growing kits. So we um, came up with these kits and then had people sign up, uh, people who were living in uh, rental towers in uh, low income communities. And we sent balcony kits and provided support to them to get, uh, get some food growing, but especially as people were hoarding produce and beginning to think, oh my goodness, in a few months, what am I going to be doing? How am I going to be able to access food? So more people kind of engage in that conversation. But in the more immediate term, we launched something uh, called what we call the emergency good food box. So a box filled with fresh, beautiful produce. Uh, and actually, that's one of our social enterprises, something called the good food box. People in Toronto jump online and order a box of produce and it's delivered to their home. So what we did is we started raising money to also make sure that we can extend that exact same good food box to folks that were struggling uh, during the pandemic. So we partnered with over 90 organizations across the city, uh, predominantly ones working with Black, Indigenous, uh, and other racialized folks, um, and, and those that um, we knew were disproportionately affected by food insecurity. So we started distributing these large boxes of fresh produce right to folks across the across the city. You know, we we're talking about groups working with sex workers, undocumented workers, student groups, and like I say, uh, BIPOC-serving organizations. So, so far, thanks to, you know, our incredible essential workers that are out uh, packing the produce, delivering the produce. We've been able to distribute over a million pounds of fresh produce to folks in every amazing. corner of our city. That's amazing. Um, I think when, that's the thing. When, when you put it into numbers like that, a million pounds of produce, you realize a, the scale of the efforts that you're doing, but also the scale of the problem. Um, Indeed. And I think it's, it's, it's quite interesting you mentioned the, um, the balcony growing kits. I, I did a recent episode of, of the podcast with um, a gentleman called Sean Holden Chung, who runs an organization called Raising the Village in Canada. And okay. um, they use small investments to try and tackle the problem of ultra poverty in sub-Saharan Africa. So they mm -hmm. give investments to individuals in communities who then use them to buy something like, um, like, 
like an animal which they can use um, mm -hmm. for fertilizer or for food or whatever they want on and one of the things they launched is a, a growing kit for things like jerry cans and bags and stuff like that and it, it's amazing when I was speaking to him as well as yourself the impact that these sorts of things can have on people's lives is just amazing and all they seem although they seem quite small they have such a huge impact well especially yeah when when we've made food a commodity and we've lost so much control over food in our food systems you know these types of interventions really begin to assert you know or support a growing number of people in accessing food i want to just add one thing that i think is also critically important to what i said before about uh, the distributing of those good food boxes i'm really pleased because you know we not only talk about uh, the importance of income based interventions but we model that behavior as well so those folks out delivering uh, good food boxes at the height of the pandemic, you know, from the minute that the pandemic hit, we introduced a $4 an hour top up uh, to all of our essential workers. So that's mid-March 2020 that continues to this day because it's still uh, risky for them to be out doing this work. Not only that, but these are workers that have access to paid sick days. The number of paid sick days that they would need um, would, uh, should they need to quarantine um, if they or someone in their families tested positive for COVID-19. So I, I really think nonprofits and charities also need to be thinking a lot about how they uh, are supporting their workers and the types of decent work that we, we, we should be creating. I think it's not okay for charities to uh, feel like we, we shouldn't participate in creating the kind of world that we need to create, you know, starting internally. So that's one thing that's been really important to us and that we continue to encourage other nonprofits to make sure that they're joining us in uh, supporting uh, the, the, the push for decent work uh, across the board. Mm, no, absolutely. I think... Um individuals who um do work for these causes and and like yourself and, and everyone that works for for food share as well as all the other organizations they are um some of the most inspiring people out there and as you say they deserve to be comfortable in their work have access mm -hmm. to sick days should they have to quarantine um and and be um as you say, rightfully uh, paid for, for putting themselves at risk, which is exactly what they're doing for, for an amazing cause. So um, absolutely hats off to, to any individual out there that's doing that. You are, you are one of um, one of life's heroes in current times. So, so thank you very much. Um, in, in terms of um, everyday individuals and just people in general, how can we, how can anyone help you help food share help any sort of organization achieve these goals and impact causes like food insecurity that's a you know we said i said earlier that you know i, I think that we could eradicate things like food insecurity and poverty tomorrow you know it's all down to whether or not the political will exists you know the existence of poverty and food insecurity are clearly political choices so what i encourage people to do is to get in touch with their elected officials at every level of government especially when it comes to your provincial and federal governments and let them know that you know that it doesn't have to be this way and that you demand 
demand uh, a serious and, and, and committed effort from the government to, to do what they can and use the levers available to them uh, to challenge food insecurity and put this thing in our history books once and for all. That's where it belongs. No, I agree. As, as you say, the, um, although it's, it's great for people to donate to food banks if they have spare food rather than it going to waste. However, there's a lot more that we can do to achieve the same goals that we're trying to achieve, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think it's important. You know, I understand the moral imperative to respond to hunger uh, at the community level. You know, I think we, we do have to be mindful about what messaging we're telling people when we reinforce systems that, um, you know, provide other people's leftovers to folks that are struggling. So I really think the biggest thing that we can do, and if we're going to continue to donate to a food bank, that's fine. You know, food banks need need food, but we we what we really need is systemic change, and we need to we need our governments to use every lever available to them to end end poverty and food insecurity. As we said earlier, I think it's we we need to get to a stage where food banks are no longer required because everyone has the access to the food that they need with and it doesn't get to that stage where they are required exactly so so looking um slightly to the future so so if you look sort of three five ten years into the future what do you want to have achieved what is there anything you want to have happened in that time yeah you know like i said earlier i think we need to put poverty and food insecurity right where it belongs in our in our history books across the globe and what we'll do is we'll get together and we'll have podcast conversations and the like and we'll talk about how we did it and we'll never ever commit to allowing such neglect to occur again and to to to, to sort of round up the, and finish the conversation if, if you could give one piece of advice to anyone that's listening what would it be? Hmm, that's a good one. One piece of advice. Uh, I, you know, I am a, sometimes to my detriment, but uh, I'm an optimist, you know, and I, I do believe that we can eradicate these issues. I do believe that something better than what we are currently experiencing, where in, in Canada, at least, there are over 5 million people that are food insecure. I think we can get over that hump. I think we can envision something radically different. Uh, we just have to keep chipping away and make sure that we're setting our, our, our vision for what's possible, setting it high and making sure that we're dreaming in color. Mm, no, that, that, I couldn't ask for a better answer there. So thanks. <laughs> thanks. Ah, um, my pleasure. If, uh, if anyone wants to find out some more information about yourself or food share or, or wants to contribute to your mission, where is the best place for them to do so? Okay, so uh, I'm on Instagram, Facebook, uh, all of those things, Twitter, and I'm at uh, at Paul Taylor To. Foodshare is at uh, Foodshare To uh, on all of the platforms, and then our website is uh, Foodshare.net. So really encourage folks to reach out, and if there are ways that we can support uh, you in your advocacy work, or if we could be working together, we'd love to explore doing that. Absolutely. And um just wanted to say that um Paul it's, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um what Food Share does and, and stands for is is truly inspirational and um is completely deserving with the title of this show, Let's Shape the Future. You you are shaping the futures of, of so many individuals for the better and and I can't wait to see how far you take your mission. So so thank you so much for joining me today. 
Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. And that is the end of episode two of season two. Thanks for listening. Um, Next week, I'm joined by Tim Coldwell, president of Canadian construction firm Chandos, which promises to be a really insightful discussion. Um, If you're enjoying the content, please leave a review and share with anyone you think would also enjoy. Have a great rest of the week, everyone.